Uh, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 13. Uh, we're going to begin in, verse, uh, in verses 13 to 15. Uh, we're going to be looking today at Paul's incredible proclamation of the gospel to a Jewish audience. And it begins here in verses 13 through 15. It says, Now Paul and his companions, uh, that is John Mark and that's Barnabas, set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them, that's John Mark, left them, and we'll see later uh, about this incident when uh, they decide to go on another missionary journey and Paul does not want John Mark to go with them, uh, with them because he doesn't think that he's reliable. Um, and Barnabas disagrees and Paul and Barnabas split ways, but that's another another sermon for another day. Uh, so John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch uh, in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So here is Paul, who is a Jew of Jews, uh, who is a known Pharisee throughout the region, but has converted to Christianity and now is truly beginning to fulfill his call to become an apostle to the Gentiles. But before he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, here is his last-ditch effort to be an apostle to the Jews. Uh, and the message that he proclaims is the gospel of Jesus, uh, and it's a powerful proclamation. Uh, and even their rejection of that message led Paul to powerfully proclaim that message uh, to the Gentile world. And I think it's important for us to be reminded as we consider what it means to be a proclaiming church or an evangelistic church is that we are not responsible for the outcome of the proclamation, but we are responsible to become the witnesses that God has called us to be as a, as a community. And it says, after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. I do not believe that they knew what they were getting into uh, here saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul's like, oh yeah, I got some encouragement. Uh, and this is a powerful movement on the gospel. And I want to remind all of you that the first pillar of Door of Hope is the cross, specifically the cross. I don't just say the first pillar of Door of Hope. That, and and we, we as a church, if you're new to Door of Hope, we establish the church upon four pillars, the cross, community, simplicity, and the city. And those pillars are to help kind of keep us focused on what it is that is our unique call as a community of faith, as a community of followers of Jesus. How do we, how do we actually function and fulfill that vision? And so everything that we do is filtered through those pillars. But the first pillar is the cross. And the cross specifically, not the first pillar is Jesus, because even the most liberal churches that do not believe the scriptures to be the word of God, that don't even believe Jesus to be the actual son of God, would still say they're about Jesus. They'll just say that they're about his teachings. So the cross actually gives a clear meaning of what we mean when we talk about Jesus. Because we aren't talking about Jesus if we aren't talking about his atoning work for the world. And so the cross is the center of the gospel. If Jesus is the gospel, the cross is the center of that gospel. For if we take the cross out of Christianity, we drain it of its blood. Because we can't even talk about the resurrection because the resurrection implies that first God did what? Died. Uh, and so this is why Paul himself, who was incredibly educated, incredibly eloquent, he knew philosophy, he knew Jewish thought, he was well-versed as a Roman citizen as well as a Jewish citizen. 
Uh, he knew knowledge, the knowledge of the day, and yet he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I have determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And what we need to understand is when Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, that is the proclamation of the church as a whole and continues to be to this day. We preach Christ crucified. Paul didn't say, I preach Christ crucified. He said, we preach Christ crucified. That word preach means to herald. To be a herald, that is one who communicates on behalf of the king, means that we have been given a specific message and that message is not to be messed with. If you're a herald, you don't get to create the message that you give. You are simply relaying that which has been given to you by the king. And so Paul preaches Christ crucified and says the church is called to preach the same message. We don't graduate beyond the gospel. The gospel informs everything that we do. The gospel is the center of everything we do. It is the gospel that opens up the vastness of God's love to us. It is not a mystery that stays hidden. That's Gnostic. No, it's a mystery that has been revealed, and we are called to make that revelation known as witnesses to Jesus Christ. And so we have a word of encouragement, church, and the word of encouragement is the gospel, but the gospel doesn't feel like encouragement when it first comes. And as we'll see, this is exactly what Paul does as he begins to proclaim Christ and him crucified. So look with me at verses 16 through 25, because first of all, we're going to see how Paul gives this message and, and, and actually shapes the message for the Jewish audience, but the gospel is the same, and we can learn many lessons about how it is that we should approach proclamation, uh, how it is that we should preach Christ, how we should preach the cross. Uh, and so we learn a lot from this. So beginning in verses 16 through 25, it's up on the screen behind me if you do not have a Bible. It says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them. That verse is super encouraging to me personally. Uh, for God continues to put up with me in the wilderness of my own making. Uh, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, and I love it, he just jumps straight to Jesus. God has brought to Israel a savior. What is a savior? A savior is somebody who can bring men to God. And who, and who is that? It's Jesus. And there is his declaration. Jesus alone brings men to God. Jesus has brought Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So I want to just begin by noting something that's really important. Paul's proclamation of the gospel is anchored in the belief that Jesus is the fulfillment of, the Jewish, of Jewish history. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish history, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures, that the Torah, the law, the prophets, 
the wisdom books, all of them are pointing toward the Messiah, Jesus. And notice that Paul doesn't spend a tremendous amount of time exegeting the Old Testament because he's speaking to an audience that knows all of these things. But what he's showing them is that these things that you know so well, you miss the point of them. And I want to point you to the purpose of the scriptures. And the purpose of the scriptures is God's gracious movement toward you as a people that through you, he could reach the world, the world that he wants to save. And he does that through King Jesus. Now, what is so powerful about this particular passage right here in front of us, notice Paul's emphasis on God's initiative of grace. It's fascinating. For he, notice, he is the subject of nearly all the verbs. Do you notice that? Now, what can we learn from this? Uh, as we consider how it is that we witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us to recognize, as Paul is pointing out to his Jewish audience, that the gospel is anchored in human history, that Jesus is anchored in Jewish history, that he is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, as we'll consider in just a moment. But I think there's something even more significant that we can actually draw from this in regards to our own proclamation. Because what is it that made the gospel explode in that first century? What is it that caused the gospel to be so compelling? Now, keep in mind, I recognize fully that no man comes to Jesus, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. I believe fully that it is God who saves, and it, it is our responsibility to be witnesses, but it is the Spirit who draws. In fact, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. But how does he draw people to himself? He does that through the witness of his church, through a willingness to stay true to that gospel proclamation. And in the heart of this, we see a God who is providentially moving through history for the purpose of its redemption. And what's powerful about this is that Paul is noting to an audience that already believes this or maybe had lost belief in this reality, but that they are dealing with a God who has always been present amongst them. Now, here's the thing that I want you to know, because I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be an evangelistic community. And the thing that makes the gospel compelling as we are called to be faithful to preach Jesus. And now, Paul, I recognize that Jesus has the ability uh, to save whoever he wants. And when he's lifted up, no matter what the vessel is, uh, he says, I will draw people to myself. But I do believe that the power of our witness is direct in direct correspondence to the firmness of our belief that the God that we are representing is a God who is present. See, the thing in this text that actually struck me was not so much that he was keeping it tapped into their understanding of the scriptures, but their understanding of the scriptures was a history of a God who was with them, who put up with them, who delivered them, who, who actually corrected them and chastised them because he was a God who loved them and had a redemptive plan for human history. And I think one of the greatest challenges for us in the church today is not our ability to proclaim the gospel, but I think one of the greatest challenges today is our actual belief in the gospel we say we believe in. Because I always say it's not important, actually, it's not our responsibility to make someone believe. We're called to be witnesses. But I do believe it's essential that we believe what we are telling people to believe. 
In other words, I think it's extremely important that the people that we are communicating to the, gospel, the gospel to actually believe that we believe what we're telling them, because that actually is compelling. And that doesn't happen unless we are a spirit-filled community, a sensitivity to God's presence. Uh, I was just listening to uh, uh, my new friend Hannah give a little devotional to the team out, out and she used a quote from A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God. And he talks about the whole book is about actually cultivating an awareness of God's presence, that God is perpetually speaking into his creation. The problem is, is that we have not attuned our hearts to hear from him. The belief that God is always previous, prevenient grace. He's already moving. What we as his children need to do is attune ourselves to his presence. We can't be like Jacob and say, I didn't know that God was here. We need to be a people that know and believe that when we communicate the gospel, we are communicating about a Jesus who is with us and for us. And I think that this is powerfully uh, communicated here by Paul. His reading of the scripture is that it's about a history, an actual history of a people who were rebellious, but in spite of that, God was continually present with them and now has manifested himself fully or has given his final word, his final expression through his son, Jesus. And so I just think this is so important for us, guys, to understand that do we, and I think this is important, this is the question that I would ask you, practically speaking, when it comes to our willingness to proclaim the gospel, it's deeply dependent upon our belief that Jesus actually saves people and deeply dependent upon our belief that he actually saved me. For why would I proclaim salvation to a lost soul if I myself still think I'm lost? Why would I present a Jesus who is alive from the dead if he's still actually dead in my experience? You see, I don't believe that Christianity is meant to remain in the head. It is a religion of both mind and heart. That's what actually differentiates it from religion. For religion is a list of things that we do to earn a God who isn't there's favor. But Christianity is responding to a God who makes himself known through his son by his spirit and yielding to his presence and cultivating a love for him and intimacy with him until the love of Christ compels us. And what I love about this language here is that Paul declares a God who is present. And I ask you the question, notice everything he states here he sees it as God's hand was involved in all of these things. And he's going to declare that God's hand is still involved in human brokenness, redeeming, reconciling, saving. But the question I would have for you is, when you think about yesterday, are your memories filled of memories of God? That's a really convicting question, isn't it? Because I think it's true when I, the, the statement that I read, and I don't even remember where I read it, that most Christians live like practical atheists. That if God died today, would it make any difference tomorrow? May we be a people whose language is filled with the knowledge of a God who is present. I think that's really important. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish history, Paul says, because he is the fulfillment of a God who is present, graciously initiating, involving himself, and moving through their history, bringing about through their history, their Savior. Notice what he goes on to say. 
He says in verses 26 to 31, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Man, if you were the, if you, if you were the rabbi that invited this guy to talk, you would be really hating life right now. Uh, <laughs> Basically, you gentlemen who invited me to, to give a, some encouraging words, I'm telling you that the words that you communicate week after week, you don't even understand their importance or their significance or even what they're pointing to. And he says, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him and found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. I think that what Paul does here is really brilliant. Because not only does he say that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish history, but here he declares that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that essentially he is the fulfillment of the scriptures themselves, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies that are given in the scriptures, the very prophecies that are declared week after week on the Sabbath within the temples. You read the scriptures, but you do not understand them. You don't see their significance. You're trying to live out a, a series of rules and regulations when you don't realize that even the law was given for the purpose of relationship with the living God who is present. And you miss the Messiah, but God utilized your inability to see the truth of who Jesus is and that scripture actually pointed to him. Actually, through your condemnation of him and your murder of him, you fulfilled the very scriptures that you don't understand. It's fascinating what he points out here. Now, he says they did not recognize him, but really, Paul would put himself as a part of the blame. And I think that this is important, and he could speak firmly about this because he himself was one of those Jewish men who did not see the connection between the Scripture and the Messiah. It took the Messiah's intervention in his life, a revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus, to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that Paul thought he understood. And I think that what we can learn from this when we preach is that our preaching is anchored not only in human history, not only in the, in, the, in the history of a God who is involved in his world. And I think that this is important for us to understand, but that we are preaching about a God who actually fulfills his own word through his son, Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment perfectly. I think that we need to understand God's presence but we also need to understand God's word, for his word is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. Do we believe that? I think that this is important. For Look what he says. Uh, he says, They did not recognize him, nor understood the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And I think that this is a big component of the preaching of the gospel, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God's word, that he is the fulfillment. He fulfilled the law itself. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, to put the law away. I came that the law would be fulfilled. He is the one who fulfilled it. 
In fact, he says of himself in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he, he said, listen, the prophet spoke of the coming Messiah. What they didn't notice is that the Messiah, the prophets declared that the Messiah himself would be rejected and treated as a transgressor and actually put to death and would not be recognized because there was nothing beautiful about him. Read Isaiah 53 if you want to see the prophetic declarations about who Jesus would be and what he would be like. And I think this is important for us to understand because here we see Jesus is saying of himself, I am the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. I am the promised Messiah. And the, real, the realization that I am such is by the fact that I will not be recognized by my own people and that I will actually be condemned to death, uh, a death that I am not personally uh, guilty of, for I did nothing wrong. For what was Jesus? And I, th I think that this is important for us to ask here because look what, how Paul shapes this message specifically for his Jewish audience because Paul was a guy who loved to talk about the cross and here he does something really fascinating he says about Jesus, he said, they found in him no guilt worthy of death. I think that's really important. They asked Pilate to have him executed. I think we need to remember that at the center of Christianity, it's not enough to talk about a Jesus who died, but it's specific that Jesus died on the cross. But notice how Paul words this, which it shows that, at, that as we present the gospel, I like that Paul is aware of the audience that he's speaking to. He roots he, he kind of anchors down in the Jewish understanding of its own law. And he says, and when they carried out all that was written of him, so the, all the scriptures pointed to this reality, to not only his arrival in Israel, but his rejection by Israel, and ultimately his destruction, they took him down from the tree. He doesn't say the cross, he says the tree. What is he pointing to there? I think that Paul is pointing them back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. And it says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Paul points out to his Jewish listeners that Jesus, in fulfillment of the scriptures, was actually placed upon a tree. That is, that he became accursed. That he became a curse in the place of Israel. That the way that he died is significant. That the execution of Jesus is a central component of what we preach because it declares the brutality and the ugliness and the blackness of what we are capable of human beings. You know, I actually used to use, utilize the, uh, when we talk about the cross, and I think this is important uh, when, we, when we think about the cross, that we have, we have made the cross so saccharine, so safe. Uh, we've beautified it in a way uh, that, that I think actually hinders our ability to understand its message. And the cross, I used to say it would be the equivalent of wearing an electric chair around your neck, but that's actually not very accurate. They're both instruments of death. That's true. But the difference is, is that the cross where the electric chair is supposed to be a humane way to put away a criminal, I would say that it's arguable, 
Uh, but it definitely was never created to sustain the ultimate amount of human pain and torture imaginable. And that's what the cross was created. The cross is a revelation of how dark the human mind can be, the human heart is. For the cross was meant to extend and humiliate its victim to the absolute utmost. It was literally hell on earth. There the victim hangs in a way that prevents him from breathing, brutalized. We always see pictures of Jesus. He looks so peaceful on the cross and he's always wearing, he's always wearing a weird diaper. But in actuality, he was naked no control of his body movements, hung there for the world to look at, brutalized and beaten beyond human recognition, struggling to capture every breath, taunted by the crowds around, taunted by his own people, with the words over his head, here is the king of the Jews. And yet, we often forget that the center of our faith is a revelation of the hideousness of human sin, that Jesus literally became a curse. He identified with human brokenness in a way that we cannot fully imagine, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I think the important thing to understand here is that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and the Messiah was promised in Scripture to be not recognized by his people, and he would be executed, treated as a transgressor, not guilty of the crimes that he was convicted of. But here's the beautiful component of what Paul says. He says, listen, he's the fulfillment of the scriptures, and we can trust that he's the fulfillment of the scriptures, because what does it say after he was taken down from the tree and laid in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead? The resurrection takes on great significance in light of what it is that Jesus went through. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. One of the things that, that is believed to have caused such an explosion of growth of the church in the early days is that once again, Paul and, and those, those apostles, especially those eyewitnesses, the disciples, they proclaimed to Jerusalem and beyond that Jesus rose from the dead that we know that he was the son of God. We know that he was the promised Messiah because not only did he go around the land doing good and preaching the kingdom of God and healing and casting out demons, but he also was put to death, wrongly accused. But we know that he was the Messiah and not just another prophet because he rose from the dead and we spent time with him. We saw him. Our eyes have beheld him. There was such conviction. They call that the Jerusalem factor. Is that that firm belief, those who proclaimed the gospel knew so deeply that Jesus was everything that he proclaimed to be, that they were absolutely fearless in their proclamation of that gospel. But look beyond this. Not only do we see Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish history and Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the fulfillment of the scripture and its prophecy, but we see Jesus as the son of God. For in verses 32 to 37, he says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. What God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. God utilized our blindness, our rebellion, to bring about his redemption. Our inability to see the Messiah 
and our unwillingness to listen to him and even our willingness to put him to death was actually the means by which God would bring about not only our salvation, but the salvation of the world. And here is the thing that he points out. He says, by raising Jesus, as it also is written in the second Psalm, and here he uses the scriptures again to defend the authenticity of who Jesus is. And he says, he's not just the Messiah. He's not just a man. He needs to be man enough that, we can that he can be sympathetic, that we can relate to him, but he can't save us unless he's God. God alone saves. And he, said, he uses the Psalm to declare Jesus is the Son of God. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, and that's a unique... Uh, that's a unique statement. That word begotten means of the same essence. He's not like every man. He is both man and God. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And now he uses Isaiah 55, 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That is that he is the fulfillment of, those, of, the, of the messianic promises, but he is also a son begotten by him. Therefore, he, he says also in another psalm, he now uses Psalm 1610, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, and here Paul brilliantly says, listen, the promise that was made to David could never be kept by David, for David was just a man. And notice how he connects the dots of the scriptures by the, being led by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures, we believe. I, he shows how the scriptures said that this scripture would be fulfilled in a unique way, that he would be both man and God, that he is, yes, he is the son of David who will sit on the throne forever, but he is God because he is not like man. He's not buried in a grave, but he rose from the dead. And he says, but I love this. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And I think that now Paul is going to move us toward the great central truth of what he declares in Romans 6, verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives to God. Because look what he goes on to say. He says, listen, he's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And because of that, Jesus is the justifier of sinners. Verses 38 through 45. And here is the heartbeat of the gospel. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I want to just stop right there. And there you have the heartbeat of the gospel. This is important. Luther, Martin Luther once said that uh, what makes a theologian uh, is their ability to distinguish between law and gospel. And here we see Paul brilliantly revealing the significance of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. That it wasn't just that he came as the Messiah that wasn't acknowledged as the Messiah, but that was all a part of God's redemptive purposes. That when Jesus actually was baptized into the baptism of repentance, baptized by John the Baptist, the question has always been raised, why did Jesus need to be baptized into a baptism of a repentance if he was without sin? But the power of that moment is that Jesus was showing us that he came to identify, not that God didn't simply come to identify with our humanity, but he came to identify with our lowest point, our sin, our brokenness. That he came to enter into that. And as he was baptized, the heavens opened and the dove descended upon his head. He became spirit-filled. 
And at that moment, the, the voice of the father declared, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I am pleased with my son's identification with your brokenness. God's heart, his plan, his gracious movement throughout human history was to bring about redemption. Jesus is the elect. Jesus is the salvation of the world. And Jesus comes to set us free from our futile efforts to find God in our own, in our own ability. And so what Paul says, it's more than just forgiveness of sins. I love what he says here. He says that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness of sins is, is, is saying, I, I forgive the wrongs that you committed, but that doesn't actually impact how we live. And I like what he goes on to say, which I think is truly the significance of the gospel. And by him, everyone who believes is freed but freed from something really specific, freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And I think that here you have this great proclamation that we are not saved by our works. For the law, I think this is so important for us to understand, the law cannot save us. Is the law bad? No, the law is good. It's perfect. But the problem is the human, human ability to keep the law. It's exactly what Paul said in Romans 7, 18. But here's the thing. You're like, well, I don't even know the Torah or the law. Listen, wherever we create law, we create problems for ourselves because law cannot be kept. The moment there's a law in front of us, we want to break it. That's the temptation. When the speed limit says 20, I drive 40. And you're like, well, I don't do that. I don't care. I'm just using it as an example. My daughter is constantly saying, Dad, slow down. Why would you jeopardize my life? I don't know. I just need to break laws. And I think that this, and maybe I'm more extreme, but this is the point of the gospel, is that we constantly finding our, find ourselves doing the things that we don't want to do. And the things that we know we ought to do, for some reason, we just don't do it. And what it does is it piles up guilt upon guilt upon our lives. Paul himself says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is, what, this is what Paul is declaring, but in Romans 7, 18, he says it so clear, and he uses it in the first person. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. It does not get any more clear than that. What makes the gospel so incredibly offensive in our current culture, is first of all, we're so materialistic that we've forgotten that God is present. So we're often proclaiming a God that we don't even really believe in, that we don't even really believe is present. But also, we, we live in a culture that is driven by this kind of new Gnostic movement. It's not new, it's old, but it's this deep abiding desire within the human heart to excel beyond where we currently are. And so what do you have? Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of books that are out there to help you achieve all of your potential, to find your best now. My wife was just given a book by a dear friend called... <coughs> You're a bad A and you don't know it. You just don't know it. Such a stupid title and it's the dumbest book and it's a number one seller. And she's like, I'm gonna tell her I hate this book and forgive me, Mindy, for calling you out for getting Darcy that book, uh, even though she's not, she doesn't go to Door of Hope, so we just won't tell her that we said it. But it's a dumb book and it's a dumb idea. Even, even uh, all these books are, you know how many number one like top sellers there are right now on self-help? And it's all about human ability, possibility, 
what the gospel does, and this is why the gospel is truly the alien work of God. And I want you to hear this clearly. If you don't know Jesus, what we're telling you is that you cannot save yourself. You will never be able to get to what you want to be. And what the gospel declares is that the law of God was given not to actually save us. It was given actually as a revealer. It became an instructor. It's a plumb line from heaven. The gospel is, the law is good and it is perfect, but all it does is reveal how crooked the wall is. All it reveals is how not good we are. That's why we say that sin is not a measurement of how, how bad you are. It's a measurement of how good you're not. And so we come up against this wall and Paul is trying to bring his listeners up against this wall. He's showing them the distinction between law and gospel. And the gospel is offensive to human sensibilities because this is what the gospel says. There is no human way to become all that you want to be. And the fact that you long in your heart to be more than you are shows that you are made for more than what you currently are, but you cannot get there because we have this problem that we've thrown out as some sort of archaic idea, and that is the idea of sin. If we get rid of sin, then we're not bad, right? But all we have is now is a culture that is not only naive about the reality of sin, but can't figure out why they're in despair. So we have a responsibility as a church to help people understand their deep abiding need. You will not see the need for a savior if you don't see you're fundamentally lost and broken and sick terminally sick. And this is what Paul proclaims. This is the word of encouragement that he gives. Because what does the cross do? The cross is a fundamental attack on human sin. And yet sin is what I am. I think we need to understand this because Galatians 2.16 said, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith, accepted on on the terms of Christ's fulfillment of the law on our behalf. What we believe as Christians is that Jesus Christ lived the life that you and I could not live, which qualified him for the death that he died. And the death that he died now qualifies us for the life that he lived. It's the power of the gospel. And if this isn't the central heartbeat of what we do and what we say, then we have something that is other than Christianity as it's traditionally meant to be. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, which he's quoting from Habakkuk 1.5, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. God is declaring over Israel that he is going to do a work. He is going to do a work a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them. The next Sabbath and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Notice that, not continue in the law, but continue in in the gift that comes through the one who fulfilled the law on their behalf. Luther said that the purpose of the law is to free us from the law. I've thought a lot about that. I also have thought a lot about a statement that Luther made that's been, that was kind of troubling for me, but I see it even more clearly when I read through this passage of Paul proclaiming 
to those who were given the law by God as a means to bring them into relationship with him, but they were incapable of keeping the law, so the law became a curse for them. For Paul says, is the law bad? Absolutely not. I would not have known what sin is if I had not known the law. That's one of the issues that we're faced with today is we've eradicated the law, and in doing so, we're no longer aware of what it is that's destroying us. But can you imagine how offensive it was for the Jewish listener to hear that the very thing that they're called to put their life base their life upon is incapable of saving them and that they miss their own Messiah, the absolute offensiveness of that. And I think about this phrase that Luther said, and it's starting to make sense to me. Before God can become your God, he first must be your devil. And I was like, what the heck does he mean by that? I don't know. I just wanted to say it because I think it's cool. Um, but no, I actually thought a lot about it. Is that is what, what Luther means by that? is that the gospel brings death before it brings life. It'll feel like an absolute attack upon our sensibilities. That's why it's offensive to those who are perishing. For God says, you can't save yourself. Cast your faith upon my son. I, I have died for you. I came to save, seek and save you. You maybe don't even know you're lost, but you are. You can see why it would make it feel like what Luther declared. God must first become our devil before he can become our God because it's so contrary to human logic. It's so outside the self-help world. It's so different. Look what happens. As they went out, people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. We're so excited. He urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. It doesn't take long before the gospel is in conflict with the, with, the, with the age. And here is where it ends. Beginning in verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Remember what Paul says in, in Romans 1? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, then the Gentile. God proclaims through, through the apostles the gospel of Jesus to Israel first, and Israel's rejection is also in line with the fulfillment of Scripture. And I think this is so interesting. Paul says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Notice, they don't concern themselves with the response. They don't get discouraged. I'm sure they're discouraged in the, in the sense that Paul desired that all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And when I say all men, I mean humanity. And I also know that Paul deeply cared about his own people. In fact, in Romans uh, 9 through 11, he makes this, this incredible statement at one point, very similar to Moses, I would give up my own salvation if I thought I could save my brethren. But here, with boldness, he says, this is, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. We're not responsible. What we can learn from this is that we are calling people to put their faith in a, in a completed, finished work, the work of Jesus. But if those people do not receive what it is that's proclaimed, we just continue to proclaim it because God will draw people to himself and not everyone will say yes to it. 
But what we need to have is our lives so radically transformed by that gospel that we are not destroyed when someone says, I don't want anything to do with what you believe. Instead, we should continue. And I love what he says. He says, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, and what he's saying there is, you are worthy of it, you just judge yourselves unworthy of it. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. We're just, nothing's gonna stop us from preaching the gospel. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here, Paul utilizes once again the scriptures to say that the very rejection of the gospel by the Jews is the means by which the gospel then would go out to the whole world. And that's exactly what he says in Romans 9 through 11. He says, through their rejection, the Gentile has been grafted in. And he tells the Gentile believers, don't think that this, don't then think that you're better because of their hardness of heart. For God's desire is to redeem. His desire is to save. And he says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to, the, to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I think this is also important for us to know that we don't get to pick and choose where we serve. Paul's deep desire was to be an apostle to the Jews. That's what he understood. God says, you shall be my appointed vessel to the Gentiles. And Paul was obedient to that vision. And I think that this is an important part of the gospel as well, is that a sensitivity to the Spirit will lead us to a sensitivity of who God wants us to speak to. Don't fight against him. And if he's not that real to you, then begin to pray, God, reveal your love to me in a tangible way. Make it experiential that the love of Christ may compel me. I want us to be a people that live out the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. And those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and raised. Notice, the love of Christ controls. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. And his love is revealed in the fact that he died for all, and all have died in him. What we are proclaiming to the world is a gospel that has already taken effect What we are calling people to say yes to is the yes that God has already declared over them in Jesus. That doesn't mean that all will be saved. It just means that Christ has actually worked out salvation for all people. And I believe that our proclamation must be rooted in the belief that Jesus is the savior of the world. Election is not about God choosing some and rejecting others. Election is about God choosing you that through you he can save all. I believe that with all my heart. And it's what makes me come to you guys today and say once again that we must be an evangelistic church. If we are to fulfill an apostolic vision, that is, if we are to come into line with what we see happening in the book of Acts, we will be a people that recognize that we don't have the flexibility or the freedom to proclaim whatever new news is out there about how it is that you can find 12 steps to a perfect life that what we see is not 12 steps, but we see one person. And it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That he eradicates human effort. And what we are calling people to do is to say yes to God's one-way love. He loves you because it is his nature to love. Will you say yes to that love? And will you be a conduit of that love to a lost world? If you are here today and you're a part of this church and you're a part of the community and you know Jesus, then what is preventing you from 
from taking those steps toward being a witness? Why don't we be a church that's filled with friends that don't know Christ, inviting them to come and hear the gospel? We need to be that, guys. I would encourage you, take that first step. Just try inviting someone to come to church to experience what it is that you experience as a part of the community. Live on the edge. Allow the gospel to actually do something in and through us. As we accept the free grace, the gift of Jesus, may that gift in, in, in turn be worked out as a community with fear and trembling, for it's an awesome gift. It's an awesome gift that requires an awesome response. Not the response of, I now will do things in my flesh, but as I yield to Christ's spirit, may he work powerfully through me to reach all. I pray that we would take seriously the commission to go and make disciples. We can't make disciples if we don't preach the gospel. We have to invite them in. Are we ready to do that as a community? I pray that we are.